Hi friend, it's 2020, and let's be real. If you're anything like me, this year is not going the way you planned. It may feel lonely, scary, disappointing, or even overwhelming. But especially in times like these, and no matter what life stage you're currently in, do you find yourself longing for something better, something real? When all else has been stripped away, what matters most? Maybe like me, you wonder about things like restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. And truth, I am on an imperfect journey of pursuing Jesus Christ and what it looks like to find those things in relationship with Him. It's a journey I committed two years ago when I dedicated my life to following Christ. And it's a journey I invite friends to explore with me, even if, and honestly, especially if, you don't know what path you're on. So for those who are skeptical, curious, or just need some encouragement, can I get an amen? (laughs) This podcast is for you. Please come along with me as we journey together towards finding something real. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast. This is your host, Janelle Wood, and I'm thankful you're listening today. I am joined today by a very special returning co-host, Lucrezia. Lou, will you say hi hi and where you're joining from? I'm joining from Italy and I'm currently quarantined. (laughs) (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Earlier this month, Lou and I co-hosted an interview with Alan Crostick and we were sitting next to each other at my kitchen table. Today, we're an ocean, several time zones and a pandemic apart. But via the miracle of technology, we're here today. Lou, I'm so thankful for you, and I'm glad I haven't scared you away yet. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you could, so don't worry. Well, friend, it's the year of the twilight zone. I mean, 2020. And we started back in January talking about clarity on this podcast, and that's what we're still doing. Clarity means we're looking for transparency. We're looking for what's real. And we're talking about clarity around different issues, issues that I personally want more clarity on, and maybe you want that too. This month, we are talking clarity around living with the gospel. In other words, what difference does the gospel of Jesus Christ make, especially in times when the world feels bat crap crazy? If you want to get the reflective questions that will challenge you to wrestle with each month's topic, you can access those questions via my website at www.janellewood.com. Just look for the section at the top of the page that says Clarity 2020. Today, we are excited to be chatting with a man who has a passion for sharing and defending the gospel. He is a speaker and blogger for a ministry called Faithful Apologetics. He has a passion for philosophy and apologetics and has over 10 years studying and teaching in those areas. I am pleased to welcome Chan Arnett to the Finding Something Real podcast. Chan, welcome. Hey, thank you. Very, very excited to be here. Uh, I'm so thankful you're here. And would you mind sharing a little bit more about your ministry? And for those who don't know, what exactly um, is apologetics? Sure. Well, apologetics is um, from the Greek word apologia. So when the New Testament was written, it was actually written in Greek, not English, right? So (laughs) when you go to 1 Peter 3.15, he instructs all Christians and encourages to to set Christ apart as Lord in our hearts and to always be ready to make a defense. Some translations may say give an answer to anyone who asks us for a reason of the hope that's within us. 
and to do that with gentleness and respect. Now, when he wrote that, when he put to make a defense, that's one Greek word. And the Greek word, again, is apologia. So that's where we get apologetics. It, most people think it has to do with apologizing for something, <laughs> but but it really don't. It has to do with making a defense. Like when you look at the, or I like philosophy, you know, Plato's apology, that means his defense. That doesn't mean his, you know, giving an apology for something he did wrong. <laughs> so that's mm-hmm. what apologetics is. And mm-hmm. what I like about it is every Christian's instructed to engage in this. So that's my passion. So since every one of us is engaged or instructed to engage in it, um, what I want to do is help people be a good apologist, not a bad one. How did you get passionate about apologetics? Well, I ended up, uh, I was at Marshall University, a little university, and I would go out and I would, you know, curse and sometimes get in a fight or two. Well, a bunch of people were going to go out and we had just been in a conversation. Some people were like, well, I'm you know, I'm a Christian, you know, some people are like, I'm an atheist. And I was like, well, I'm a Christian. And then it wasn't a few minutes later, a guy who I know wasn't a Christian. I don't even remember. I don't even remember his name. I can picture him in my head, though. I know what he looks like. This was a long time ago, probably about 2000, about 20 years ago. And um, I was like, he was like, well, is everybody going out? I was like, yeah. He goes, well, didn't you just tell me earlier you're a Christian? He goes, Christians don't go out and fight and curse and things like that. And on the inside, I was thinking, you know what? You're right. <laughs> so I noticed this glaring inconsistency between my profession, namely that I've trusted in Christ, right? That I'm a Christian and my behavior and my mindset. And I knew they didn't match. So over a long period of time, my grandfather, Del Donahoe, is um is a Sunday school teacher, but he's he's a cut above the rest. I say that not just because he's my grandfather, but because he has a wealth of knowledge where he learned to self study over the years. He couldn't find answers. Um in church or from other people. So he started looking for answers on his own and got scholarly academic resources and learned to read them and learned the importance of the original languages of the Bible. Now he doesn't know Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic and doesn't study that stuff, but he, um, he knows the importance and knows how to do word studies. So he sort of instilled in me this passion for truth. And then one, one evening I was watching a teacher. Um, this is after I became a Christian, about six or seven months of that. I ended up, not having some experience, some crazy um, emotional experience like a lot of people have as a company with their testimony. There's nothing wrong with that because I mean, that's an emotional thing, being forgiven of your sins, realizing you've reaped um, an eternal goodness in God and things like that. But for me, it wasn't an experience like that. It was just searching and then finally um, an assent and commitment to the truth of what I'd been studying for months. Um, and after I'd done that, I'd been watching some teacher on TV, I think, had I known who he was at the time, I probably wouldn't have <laughs> watched him. I think early on he was kind of nuts, for lack of a better <laughs> term. But then later on, as he got older, he was actually pretty solid. I think his name was Dr. Gene Scott. Um, like I said, I didn't know anything about him. I didn't know who he was. And I just saw him teaching on TV, and he had all these different ancient languages written up on the board. And he was talking about uh, the resurrection of Jesus being historical. And I was, and I believed it was a historical event, but you know, sometimes we there's things that happen in history we don't have any evidence for. We can't know, for instance, that they actually happened. Well, he was saying that you could know that the resurrection happened. I was like, well, I was just captivated by it. Well, at the beginning, he opens a book called Jesus Under Fire, and gives a quote by C.S. Lewis, who I'd heard of but didn't know any of his works. And I was like, well, I've got to have this book. So I ended up buying the book, and lo and behold, there's an essay in this book. What the book is, it's a collection of essays by scholars in print against the sayings of uh, a group called the Jesus Seminar, which is sort of a liberal 
a group that has all kinds of crazy stuff going on about Jesus. I mean, it's really odd. And this is a book that goes against that with all these essays. So there's an essay in there about the resurrection of Jesus being historical, and it was the most eye-opening, uh, life-changing thing I had ever read up to that point. And I noticed that it was written by a guy I'd never heard of, uh, William Lane Craig. And needless to say, I started looking into him and his material, and my life's never been the same ever since. I knew right then I had found my passion and my, and my, I guess you could say, calling for lack of better terms. And namely, that was Christian apologist, because he's arguably the world's greatest living apologist. Hmm. Wow. So I was reading something you had written at the end of January this year for the Faithful Apologetics blog. The yeah. title of the blog post was, Do We Suffer from Brand Loyalty? You oh, said, yeah. <laughs> you said, and I quote, it seems the vast majority of Christians and non-Christians hold to what they want or have heard to be true, not what they have actually found to be true. The result is just blind brand loyalty to their worldview beliefs that inevitably can lead to disastrous consequences. I love that quote and I agree with it. And I'm wondering if you'd share more about that idea because I think the majority of people I encounter, whatever their faith background is, believe what they believe because they want to instead of having spent time investigating things for themselves. So my question is, why do you think that is? And what are the consequences of someone, say, who believes in Jesus and has never taken the time to investigate their faith versus someone who never gives Christianity a shot because they grew up with a secular worldview? Well, and I think those are two important questions. And I think um, I think even non-Christians can sometimes suffer from brain loyalty. I don't think it necessarily is a Christian limited to Christianity. I think um, it could apply to any religion or any worldview. Um, you just kind of grow up on that brand, and that's the way it is. Um, but I think really what some of the verses that were transformative for me uh, were when Jesus talks about the truth. Um, and it really, really hit hard. Um, for instance, when he's standing before Pilate in John, uh, I believe it's John 19, 38. 37, Pilate asked him, he says, are you a king? And he says, you're right in saying I'm a king. And he says, for this reason I was born and for this cause I came into the world. And you're expecting him to say, um, you know, to save the world to do all this. But he doesn't. He says to testify to the truth. He says, everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. Well, I think what's lacking in our culture, and this plays into the brand loyalty mindset, is um, it's just not a pursuit of truth. Most people, Frank Turek says this a lot. Dr. Frank Turk from Cross-Examined Ministries, he says, most people are on a happiness quest, not a truth quest. And they usually identify with what brand they grew up on, so to speak. And I, I think this is a, like you said, I think this is a huge problem and, and people miss the truth. The truth is so important. Jesus said that the truth will set you free. So that's why I think the brand loyalty um, commitments can be really devastating. Uh, to people in their lives because they're missing out on the truth. And what's odd is in any other category of life, other than say morality and religion and ethics, people really want the truth, don't they? Like when it comes to balancing their bank account or reading a label and the ingredient, they, they really want objective truth and they complain when they don't get it. But it seems like in these other areas, there's, and there's various reasons for this, but uh, they just, they have this blind um, brand loyalty commitment. 
Mm. And unfortunately, it affects Christians and non-Christians, it seems to me. So what would you say to the Christian, though, who says to you, well, <laughs> I know the truth and it doesn't matter whether I investigate or not? I mean, I think there are some people like that. So what is your argument or um, your persuasion for somebody who's like, ah, I don't need to know any of that because I've, I've got the truth already. It doesn't matter whether I investigate it or not. Yeah, and I think that's a fantastic question. And I, and, and I think what's important is to distinguish the difference between knowing Christianity is true and showing that Christianity is true. So. Hmm. To set sort of a, I hope I don't get too deep and get a sidetrack, but to answer that, I think Christianity has what they call double warrant for its truth. So I hold to what's called Reformed epistemology. Um, epistemology is just a category that is just a field where we study everything related to do with knowledge. How do we know stuff? What counts as knowledge? What's a true belief? That's what epistemology is. So Reformed epistemology holds that... Um, we can know God in what's called a properly basic way. So a properly basic belief would be a belief that, say, the external world is real or the past wasn't created five minutes ago with the appearance of age. These are beliefs we're all rational and justifying, are holding to, and we're rationally justified in holding to them, but we don't know them. Like, you don't argue for those things. You just experience them as true, right? They're just self-evident. So that's a properly basic belief. And um, another form of properly properly basic beliefs is eyewitness testimony. So say you and Lou had studied something, and it took you all a long process to figure out the truth and the conclusion. But then you tell me, and I trust you, and it's true. Well, I'm rational and justified in holding to that. And that's a proper, so to me it's properly basic, even though to you guys it's not. And until I have a defeater, something that defeats the truth of that belief, I'm perfectly rational to hold to that. Now, the reason I got into that is because I think there's two ways to come to know Christianity is true. And both of these involve the drawing of the Holy Spirit. One is through arguments and evidences, which I think the Bible affirms. And also we can know God through the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Romans 8 talks about how the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit and gives us confidence that we are indeed the sons and daughters of God. So um, I think people can come to know God apart from arguments and evidences through the immediate experience of the Holy Spirit in a properly basic way. And I also think the arguments and evidences rationally justify them. So the reason I got into that before answering the question is because I think some people, or a lot of people, come to know God apart from arguments and evidences. So then they ask this question, well, since I know God, I know all that's true, why do I need the arguments and evidences, right? So mm -hmm. I think the, that's why we're instructed to show Christianity's true. So if we're going to evangelize unbelievers, especially in secular culture, we need to know what these things are because it seems like lots of worldviews and religions have an experiential component. Well, if it's experiential only, how can you adjudicate between which one is actually true? Because Jesus said it's the truth that will set us free. So that's where the arguments and evidences come in, and, and we need to be able to show Christianity is true. Hmm. Lou, do you have a follow-up question to that? I think it's really interesting how you said that I think it's interesting how no matter if you're a Christian or not, 
when you think you know something, you are not gonna ask questions, you are not gonna investigate. But I mean, do you really know what you think you know if you don't? I mean, okay, it's really hard for me <laughs> to put my thoughts um, into this, but like put into words. So, um, that's okay. So, what I'm trying to say is just, I, I just liked what you said about, um, that you need to investigate, like just thinking something's true, and maybe you do have your proof that it's true, it's not enough, like you have to seek for more knowledge about it, so that you are not only able to tell yourself, that you're right, but like convince other people. Right. I don't yeah, know. and I think the um, Dr. Craig even has uh, in his book Reasonable Faith, third edition. That was a book that changed my life too, in a big way. But um, he says there's three reasons why apologetics is important. It's for uh, changing culture or shaping culture, uh, strengthening believers, and evangelizing unbelievers. Because if it's true. The concept, if God raised Jesus from the dead, which my buddy Alan had spoken of previously on your podcast, I mean, that's a game changer for everybody on the planet if that's true. So the consequences are enormous. So as Christians, we need to be able to show and tell people this is true. And um, the only thing I, I think is different from what Dr. Craig does, when he says changing culture, he talks about influence and culture through the universities. And I think he's right on that. But I think if we know these things, we can change our immediate culture, too. Because if we have a strong Christian presence and be able to know and show and defend its truth, that changes our immediate culture, whether it's our workplace or any clubs we're part of or anything like that. And that's why I think it's important not just to know in an experiential way that it's true, but to be able to show it's true, to mm -hmm. adjudicate between it and other worldviews and religions. I think um, it's interesting. Um, a few months ago, I interviewed Hillary Morgan Ferrer on this podcast, um, who does the Mama Bear Apologetics Ministry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's awesome. And um, we talked a little bit about truth. And um, if I remember correctly, something that she shared and something that I've experienced personally in conversations with atheists and agnostics is this idea that truth doesn't actually exist that there is no such thing as objective truth. Um, and I'm wondering if you would talk a little bit to that, Chan, because I feel like there is a lot of young people growing up today um, who don't believe that there is objective truth, that um, it's all relative, right? And, sure. um, and, and so I feel like that's very hard to talk to people about truth, historical evidence and all those things if there's no common foundation of there is you know truth that is not subjective it's actually objective right and I, I would just answer that as far as objective truth goes if somebody says <clears throat> there is no objective truth I just ask them to think about what they just said because they're making a statement that if it holds is what objectively true <laughs> so it's actually self-defeating so Fortunately, I haven't ran into many people who hold to that in general. Now, I think some people will hold that certain religious, moral, and ethical claims are subjective. 
um, and maybe even historical claims, but as far as in general, just all truth, um, they always live and act as though there are objective truths, even if in theory they say they don't. Mm. If that makes sense. And that's because it's self-defeating. Because if you say there's no truth, is what you just said true or false? It's self-defeating. See what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's a matter of where you put the line. As you said, um, even if you say that there's no objective truth, you are going to believe like there is one objective truth, you know, at least in some aspects of your life. So I think the thing now is where, how do you know where that line stands? Um, Because there there are some truths that are subjective, um, or maybe that cannot be proven, like it's a personal experience. But there are things that are objectively true. And I think the question now is where, how can we see um, which is which? Yeah, and I think that's an excellent, and that actually, this is actually, you brought up, you hit on an awesome point. How do we know which claims are just a matter of opinion and what obtains independent of human opinion. That's the difference in objective and subjective and they're logical opposites, right? So if something is not objective, we call that subjective. It's just a matter of opinion. And where I'm passionate about the moral argument for God's existence, in fact, I'm so passionate about it that if I ever get the funding, I would love to go to, even though it would be so insanely, mind-numbingly difficult, (laughs) I would love to do PhD work on what's known as the moral argument for God's existence. Now, there is more than one moral argument, even though people call it the moral argument. There's all kinds of different moral arguments where you can use what's called natural theology. Are you guys familiar with that term? No. Would you, for those who are listening um, to this, would you mind describing what what is it about moral, um, the moral evidence of God that, that is your passion? What, what exactly is that? Okay, well... <clears throat> um, Natural theology is a branch of theology which uses human experience and reason to arrive to the conclusion God exists in general. Not a specific strand of theism, whether it's Islam, Judaism, or Christianity, right? But one of the monotheisms. And this is, you don't use any special revelation as part of your case. By special revelation, I mean something such as the Bible, right? So these when you put all these arguments together, you can build a robust case for God's existence in general, and then you couple that with the historical evidence, an argument that Alan gave on your previous podcast about the resurrection of Jesus. And now you're not just at theism. You've moved from theism to Christian theism specifically. Hmm. But one of those arguments is the moral argument. And uh, there's several different versions of it, but the way I always start off, I always ask this question, and, and Lou hit on this with what she said. So there's a couple of top, two different types of claims. One is, if I say chocolate ice cream is the best ice cream, the other claim is the uh, Patriots did not win the Super Bowl in 2020. <laughs> so 
those two claims are different in that one, the first one, chocolate ice cream is the best ice cream. Is that true for everybody everywhere at all time? No. No. Um, it's just what we call a matter of opinion. These are personal preferences. Right and wrong go out the window. Nobody can be right for liking chocolate ice cream or be wrong for liking Rocky Road instead. <laughs> See what I mean? Mm-hmm. So these things are yeah. personal taste or matters of opinion. But then when you get to the claim, the Patriots didn't win the Super Bowl in 2020, that's true in an objective sense. By objective, I mean obtains independent of human opinion. So even if everybody on the planet decided to believe and think that the Patriots did win the Super Bowl in 2020, even if they made banners and hung them up at Gillette Stadium saying they had won, the whole world would be what? Wrong. (laughs) Yeah, they would be wrong because when it comes to those type of claims, they obtain independent of human opinion and there is a rightness and a wrongness to them. So the question is, are moral claims like the ice cream claim, are they subjective or are there some things that are morally wrong, independent of human opinion? And that's the question I usually start with on the moral argument. It's good. I, I've actually had conversations with, uh, you know, people who have different worldviews and we've gone down a rabbit trail of those kind of conversations, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, well, rape is wrong you know, across the board. And it was an interesting conversation because you eventually got to, well, that's just because you believe that. And I'm thinking, well, (laughs) it may be that I believe that, but if you lived in a world where you didn't believe that, think of what kind of world that would be, we'd be living in. So it's interesting. It's uh, an interesting thing that you have such a passion for. I I guess I'm curious, Chan, the evidence, um, that the gospel has had in your life, what difference has it made? Well, it's a game changer because um, it's true, and that's why that's why it matters. Because if it's if if the gospel is true, the consequences are wide in scope for literally everybody on the planet. Hmm. If it's false, then it's one of the greatest. Uh, conspiracies and falsities ever foisted upon mankind, it seems. <laughs> so, so to me, it changes um, every aspect of my life, the way I think even uh, foundationally, uh, because, you know, truth focused, uh, your God and even people focused. It's made me be um, a better servant uh, to the Lord and to others. Uh, it's made me focus my mind right. Um, helped me distance myself from sin or wrongdoing. Um, it's helped me tremendously in literally every facet of my life. Now, having said that, it's a process, right? Um, even as a young Christian, you know, I was still doing things that I should have done, but ultimately you grow out of that the more you learn and grow. And apologetics really was a big, a big part of that. And now as I study the moral argument, which I didn't get to get into or give yet, if we may or may not have time, but, uh, but that's really made a huge impact on my life as far as seeing that the foundation of Christian living is holiness. Um, because it says without such, we won't see the Lord according to the scripture. So, you know, holiness is vital to the whole enterprise, of not just apologetics, but even Christian living. And, and that's where it's made its biggest impact because the holier we live, the closer to God we're going to be because remember it's sin that distances us from the Lord. Hmm. 
Lou, do you have a question? I think it's really interesting. Um, maybe you didn't mean to talk about it. I don't know. Um, I think it's hmm. interesting um, what you said that if it's true, then like it had a great impact. If it's false, it's the greatest conspiracy of all time. Um, but still, it's a pretty great impact anyway. I don't know. <laughs> it just it just made me think of that that way. Oh yeah. I don't know. Hmm. Chan, I would love for you to share more about the moral argument, but I, I guess I have a question that maybe I hope segues a little bit into that. Sure. Um, so right, actually, a couple hours before we started recording this podcast, I was doing some laundry and I had YouTube playing. I was actually listening to something by Francis Chan. And then <laughs> it automatically went to something, an interview for RZIM with um, John Lennox, I think it was. Oh, yeah. He's one of my favorites. Yeah, it was awesome. And one of the questions they addressed on there, because they were talking about COVID-19, was mm. um, the question of, doesn't atheism make more sense right now? Um, and here, here's what they were talking about. The world feels a little crazy right now. Uh, I think I use the term bat crap crazy. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so, yeah, and I understood what you meant. I've heard that phrase before. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you trust or believe in a God who's allowing so many people to die and suffer right now? Um, how do you trust a God who's allowing pain and suffering and evil to exist? And I know um, that's more of a, you know, good and evil kind of question, but I'm, I'm wondering if it kind of segues into the moral argument for his existence. It, yeah, it actually does, because ultimately I think the existence of evil uh, would make us expect that God exists. And here's what I mean. If you reflect on the concept of goodness, um, Plato in his works posited something known as the good, right? These abstract forms that are just out there. Yeah. And one of those was called the good. Well, Christian philosophers, and, and I agree with them, I think the best way to think of that isn't that it's some abstract concept, but a person. So God's nature as a maximally great being, he himself, his nature is the greatest possible good. And anything that closely resembles his nature, like what he would do or this and that and the other, is good. And anything that is a privation or deprivation of that is evil. So evil is not like a thing in itself. And let me explain that real fast. What I mean is, you know how you can have heat and cold, right? Mm -hmm. Cold isn't a thing. Cold is the absence of something else, namely heat. But it's real. You can feel its effects. It can even kill you if you're exposed to it for too long, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it's also like a hole in a sweater. You have the sweater, which would represent the good. And if you have a hole in the sweater... It's an absence of the material. It's not a thing in itself. In other words, if the sweater didn't exist, could the hole be there? Of course not, because it's an absence of that thing. So the same thing with evil. Evil is a privation. Um, so what's interesting is you can't have good and evil um, or even right and wrong without God's existence to anchor it as a foundation. Now, you can believe you don't have to believe in God to know and see there's um, good and evil, right and wrong, and then act accordingly. I'm not talking about it. It's not about belief in God. It's about God's existence to anchor it as a foundation. And that's what the moral argument would actually get into and show. Uh, that's actually the conclusion of the moral argument is that theism is the best explanation for um, 
objective moral values, which is good and evil, and also objective moral duties, which has to do with obligation, right and wrong. Um, and God being God is the best explanation for that. And um, so I think the uh, there's some hidden assumptions behind the claim that in a world that seems suffused, well, I would say seems it is suffused with evil and suffering. I would say God does make the best sense of that. And the hidden assumptions are that God is all powerful, so he could create any world he wants, right? Mm-hmm. And he's also all loving, so he would prefer a world in which there's no suffering. Well, I think both of those hidden assumptions are false. Um, given Because remember, the ultimate ethic is what? Love. First John, or First John, I believe it says, God is love. Well, there's a couple of foundations on which love is built. And one of those is freedom, and the other is trust. Well, if God grants us freedom and trust, then we can genuinely love. So, given human freedom, can God create any world he wants to? Like, could God create, even if he's all-powerful, could he create a world in which a married bachelor exists? I'm going to say no, because that's a logical impossibility. Because, by definition, if you're one, you're excluded from being the other at the same time in the same sense. So that's logically impossible. So God can't bring about logical impossibilities because those aren't actually things that can even be brought about. There's no potentiality there to even bring that about. Well, the same is true for forcing someone to do something freely, right? By definition, if it's forced, it's not free. And by definition, if it's free, it's not forced. So given that God grants human freedom so that genuine love can obtain in the world apart from himself, then it's logically impossible to think that God could just bring about any world he wants. And that would include a world with no suffering. And the second assumption, namely that God would prefer a world with no suffering, I think that's false on the face of it too. Here's why. Because sometimes, and I can give a personal example of this here shortly, um, I think sometimes the only way people will come um, and look to take serious uh, the gospel is if they experience suffering. But the pro- but what people got to remember is, while Christianity is to is is really really has a heavy emphasis on this life and it matters. This life isn't the end. This life is literally like a vapor that vanishes away, and on the scope of eternity, it's not even a blip on the radar screen, right? So, any Paul calls it a momentary lot affliction. Anything that's suffered here is a momentary lot affliction compared to the eternity we would reap in goodness. Because uh, remember, the purpose of this life isn't happiness, but the knowledge of God in an intimate way. So not just knowing that he exists, but coming to trust him and love him personally. So given that, um, and given human freedom, God know, God prior to creation knew what would be the case if people were placed in any set of circumstances. So he don't determine our behavior. He gives us freedom. And he knows that if he permits, even though it's not his will or his desire for evil to obtain and for sin to reign, he temporarily permits it because being an omniscient being who's governing this entire unfolding of human history, knowing it all down to the last detail without causing it or determining it, 
um, he can ensure an outcome that maximizes the number of people who would freely come to know him and therefore reap an eternal good. So, for instance, my dad, he's passed away now, but um, he and I would always talk about theology, and he was one of these people who would say he believed in Jesus, but he would live worse than a non-Christian. Uh, he would just do whatever he wanted. He thought, once you say you believe in Jesus, you can do whatever you want, and things that used to be sin just aren't counted as sin, but you don't have to stop doing them. <laughs> and he and I would argue over this all the time, and uh, I'd have a good time doing it. Well, eventually, <laughs> he ended up having a, um, we thought he had a stroke, and they took him to Columbus University, Columbus, Ohio, and uh, my cousin Josh and I went to get him. He was ready to go. He, he came home, stayed with my grandma. It ends up, what happened was he had a mole on his shoulder that was melanoma. He didn't know it was a mole. He, he's, he was stubborn, wouldn't go to the doctor, so he kept ripping it off, ripping it off, ripping it off. Well, it ends up, it got systemic. And went all through to his brain and everything. And when it when, when those tumors in his brain would swell, it would give him stroke-like symptoms. And then when the inflammation goes down, he'd be back to normal. Um, so he said he ended up, he was, think, I mean, think about this, how powerful. He said he always wanted a testimony for the Lord. Hmm. And I told him, I said, well, anytime I get a chance to tell anybody about this, I'm going to. Hmm. So his testimony is that he um, was praying for the Lord to help him have a testimony because he knew he lived his life wrong and he just wanted to be positive for the Lord. And the last year, year and a half of his life, that's what he did. And he and I were closer than ever. He thanked me for always talking with him about the theology and stuff we did, even though at the time he rejected, he said that's what he needed his whole life. And he really appreciated me doing that. And he actually said, he, he said, I prayed for this. And he pointed to this massive tumor on his chest. And he said, I'm thankful for this. He said, I, he said, I now have a testimony. He goes, this is what got me right with God. So now, if Christianity is true, and I think it is, and we can know it's true through these arguments and evidences, then God would be immoral, right? He would be a moral monster to not permit my dad to get that cancer, knowing that my dad would reap eternity and be thanking him because of it, right? Hmm. So I think actually evil and suffering, while not God's will— I think God works through that just because of us and our fallen nature. And I think the assumption that God would prefer a world with no suffering is false for that reason, because sometimes it may take a world just suffused with suffering uh, to bring us closer to God and to come into true relationship with God. And, and therefore people can reap an eternal goodness. And again, God knows what any free person would do in any set of circumstances without causing or determining it. Does that make sense? Did that did that make sense? All that I know, I, I went through a lot right there to answer that question, but it was great. Thank you so much for sharing all of this, and I don't want to miss it. So we're going to pause, and we will come back shortly and finish this up in a couple of days. Thank you so much. Thank you. No Thank you all. And until next time. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast. If you love this series, or even if you're simply finding it moderately entertaining while living the limbo quarantine life. Hey, that works too. Hit subscribe and come back next week when I'll probably be talking with another guest about finding something real in times of detours and disappointments. And if you're on Instagram, please come find me. I share Instagram live weekly podcast recaps at Janelle underscore M underscore Wood 
almost every Friday at 11.45 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. So please join me for questions and fun live awkwardness. <laughs> you can also find some study guides I've created that I hope add joy and encouragement and challenge to you during this time. You can find those on my website at janellewood.com. Just look for Clarity 2020 at the top of the page. And now, just so you know, if you only remember one thing about this podcast, I hope that it's this. No matter who you are, Jesus Christ loves you and you have a purpose. May you truly believe it, friend. Until next time. <laughs>